Photo Shelter presents Vision Slightly Blurred. I'm Sarah Jacobs. And I'm Alan Murabayashi. Alan, this week Time Magazine uh, published an incredibly moving photo essay entitled An American Emergency, all shot by photographer Adam Ferguson, um, about the direct effects that climate change is having on the western United States. Uh, For the story, Ferguson visited six western states from Arizona to Washington. Um, He was out there for over five weeks during the months of June and July, documenting how the rise in temperatures and the droughts and the fires are all affecting those who live there. Um, He captured portraits and landscape photography and also audio clips uh, of the people that he pictured doing, doing interviews with them. And it's just a really incredible spread with a diverse range of images. But I really love that it was all shot by a single photographer. I do feel like we're seeing that less and less, particularly that he was able to travel from state to state. Less and less because of the economics of publishing uh, magazines and newspapers. This particular project was supported by the Pulitzer Center, and if you go over to the Pulitzer Center website, you'll find that uh, founded in 2006, they are now the largest single source of money for global enterprise reporting. Mm. And the only one incorporating this reporting into comprehensive educational programs that extend the impact of the reporting and allow students and the public to engage directly on the issues. So this is an interesting case where I think had time commissioned this set of photography I don't think you would have seen a single photographer uh, shooting it for that duration of of time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of curious about the economics. Does the magazine go and pitch the idea to the Pulitzer Center, and then after they gain approval, do they go and hire Adam for that five-week assignment? Or are they pitching in conjunction with Adam as the photographer? A lot of just logistical questions. But in answer to your question, fantastic photo package. Ferguson is well known in the documentary and portraiture world. Great photographer, has won tons of awards over the years. And I thought that the photos were so cohesive and visually balanced, Um, even though, as you point out, the the subject matter was very disparate. He used Mm -hmm. off-camera flash in a lot of these uh, photos, which I thought was fascinating. Um, and in some of the the portraits and and other photos that he was using the, the flash with, I thought they were a little hot by traditional standards, like maybe mm. a half half stop too hot. But I also thought that there was an aesthetic choice that made the images feel you could feel the the climate change in the images. They felt like warm to me. They felt mm-hmm. hot. Yeah. Yeah, right. That that flash can kind of make that little brim of sweat just even more glistening. And you do see that throughout the work. Um, you mentioned that you wonder about the economics of the of just how this was published and paid for. And I wonder that, too. And and I wonder if that could actually be covered in uh, Adam's Substack. He has a Substack newsletter subscription. Um, and I was going through, this is actually how I came across the time piece, was that I was going through his Substack um, emails. 
And he has a great edition of his Substack where he talks to Times Deputy Director of Photography, Andrew Katz, all about the editing of this particular project. And they edited down a thousand images down to the 25 that they ended up publishing. It's a really fascinating conversation between editor and photographer. Um, and they certainly don't hold back. I mean, literally, um, Andrew Katz is like, you know, I kind of regret that we published this one image. And Adam's <laughs> like, ooh, I know I pushed for that one, man. Sorry. Like, <laughs> um, it's just a great conversation. It was a great conversation. I, I should make a, a slight correction. In the piece, he does say they went through 11,000 images, um, not just 1,000 images, although maybe that's what Adam shot and then Andrew and Adam went through only the 1,000 images oh. that, he, that he submitted. I don't know. Oh, wow, um, wow, wow. Yes, that makes sense. But whatever the case, you know, I was reading through this dialogue, which is fascinating. We'll have a link to it on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. It really reemphasized the importance of having an editor work with a photographer in real time, or, or at least during the course of the assignment, to help guide the direction of the story. Because five weeks is a really long time mm -hmm. to be working on something without any sort of external uh, feedback and criticism and, and guidance. Um, Adam said, the photographer, when we first looked at those photos on the table, I struggled to see the sequence. I still felt close to the work and I often need distance before seeing my own work honestly. I have to separate myself from the photographs and pretend they're not mine. And I think almost every photographer has this problem. We get emotionally connected to the photography. We, we don't have that objectivity to kind of really see through uh, a more neutral edit that will get the story across more effectively. And Andrew said a little bit later in the, the conversation, the beauty of editing in person is that challenging decisions become regular conversations. I just love the the dialogue that they both had. I mean, to, to your point, it was this very uh, frank and honest conversation of what worked and what didn't. Yeah. They, yeah. they didn't agree on a lot of stuff initially, but they did both agree that the opening photo, which is a Navajo boy in an inner tube, should be the opener. And it is a stunning photo when you ex examine this. Th there's this kid in the foreground of the photo in this rainbow uh, inner tube. In the background, you see the bathtub ring, what they call the bathtub ring of the old water levels, um, historically where they were in the past. There's this sticky sheen on the kid's skin. And the haze and directionality of the light really make me feel that heat. I think it's brilliant. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing, stunning opening shot that grabs you because the kid is just looking straight, you know, into the lens, yeah. very engaged. Um, and it, it just, yeah, it grabs you. There's another portrait of two teens, Sophia Zambrano and Isaiah Vancova. And they make a point of saying that this was a staged portrait. Um, I guess every portrait is staged because the, the subjects of the portrait are aware that you're taking their photo and they're often directed into the position. But Adam recounts that the background was so messy. So I positioned them against the trees just a few meters from where we were and said, can you do what you just did before block the sun for me? Cause they had, they had sort of instinctively just blocked the sun with their eyes when he was setting up the shot. And he says, I asked them to do it as a staged portrait, but it made sense because the pose had integrity because they had just, done that that pose so it's kind of an interesting glimpse into the mind of the photographer 
if you will. Yeah, this I, I feel like this is such valuable background information, and it's so educational for photographers to um, be able to to know exactly. Oh, okay, so he he did end up moving the subjects over a little bit to the right, and he did instruct them to then again, you know, sh- shield the sun from yeah. their eyes with their hand, because I think especially when you're beginning photography, you're looking at so many images. And at least I know I was always wondering how much of this is staged, how much direction is happening. And, and so even, you know, now that we have these sub stacks, these newsletters that are giving you a peek into the creative process, it's really eye opening. The caption does point out that it is a portrait. So there's nothing mysterious about the fact that he had them pose near the end of the conversation. He has uh, one more quote. This is Adam, the photographer. And he says, there are two really important things to consider when it comes to sequencing photos. One is the intellectual decisions around the content and how it propels the narrative you're crafting, like moving from a heat wave to a heat injury, which is covered in the essay. Then there are the aesthetic considerations, the colors, the composition, and the tonal values. I guess a successful sequence is the perfect marriage of those two things, right? And Mm. I I guess they are. (laughs) I guess they are. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Adam and Andrew really nailed it. This is an amazing photo essay. It's so refreshing to see. I mean, it's kind of the wrong word to use for a climate change focused (laughs) photo essay, but to just see a large body of work that um, was, you know, that time was poured into, you know, it's, it's really great. So, um, you know, photographers, they are writing. <laughs> we just mentioned Adam's Substack newsletter, which you can subscribe to for $7 a month. And it got me thinking because I had found it, who else is on Substack in the photography world? And who else is doing newsletters that's focused more around writing rather than just, you know, here's some photos that I shot recently this month. Um, and I was able to find a few One of my personal favorites, Dina Litovsky, Um, she's an editorial photographer who has shot for Nat Geo, but she, and also New York Magazine, she focuses on kind of strange cultural phenomenons. Um, And hers is through, not through Stubstack, but through Facebook's new bulletin newsletter. So it's free. And the title of hers is In the Flash. And her, her newsletters really focus on different assignments that she's had and how creatively she's gone about them um, and how she's researched topics. Uh, and it's, it's just super fascinating. Also on Bulletin is Paul Nicklin, who is more of a Nat Geo s- photographer. I wasn't familiar with his work. Are oh, you? he's so famous on Instagram for oh all God, of his, uh, <laughs> for all his uh, <laughs> C, C related work. Uh, C Legacy is the uh, the nonprofit that he runs. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of interesting with him because if you follow him on Instagram, his captions can be very, very long because there's so much science. He's a former biologist. There's mm. so much science that he's trying to communicate as well. So, in a sense, having a longer form newsletter makes all the sense in the world. Yeah. Uh, it, I, I just wonder. You know, how many people are going to convert from just the visuals and, you know, the brief caption to something more requires more attention? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's just taking it in in such a different different way. You're getting it straight to your inbox. 
Um, it's an interesting move by Facebook to to start doing this. I assume that they they got you know they got Dina and Paul because they have large followings. Um, there's also photographer Wesley Verhove um, on Substack. That's also a free. A newsletter you can subscribe to. He, similarly to Dina, talks about the creative process, um, the way that he organizes his files, how he's gotten certain jobs, how he's made money from licensing his images. Um, it's a little bit more business focused in that sense. Um, super great newsletter there. Um, our friend Brian Formals, who is a listener of the show, um, he is a photographer, a writer, a curator, and a fellow podcast nerd just like us. He also has a Substack. Um, all about his obsession with walking and photography. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, a lot of people on the platform writing about photos. To me, it makes perfect sense for someone like Brian to be using Substack because he is a writer and Mm -hmm. he's got the podcast. And it feels very natural uh, to me for him to be writing because that's what he does partially professionally and it feels like because of the walking stuff, you know, he recently moved from New York City, but and he's trying to find his his new pace walking in other places. Um, it feels sort of cathartic, like a cathartic release for him to be writing and talking about walking and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. We we profiled Gary He uh, pre pandemic, and Gary He uh, among his many uh, hats that he wears, he's a food photographer, and he started a subscription based Substack called Astrolabe. That was 60 bucks a year. And I noticed that he hasn't updated it since February, which mm. I think is illustrative of the problem of trying to feed that content machine on a regular basis. Yeah. It hasn't precluded him from doing great food coverage for his paid clients. Uh, he just did one for Resi about a new restaurant that's opening or just open called Saga. That's on, you know, the 18th billion floor of one of these uh, FIDI <laughs> buildings. Um <laughs> And, you know, in thinking about Gary and, and Adam and Dina and Paul and Wesley and Brian, I, I have sort of mixed feelings about photographers needing or I guess wanting in some cases to di- diversify their income streams by becoming, quote, creators. Now, and what I mean by that is, is they're creators for the purpose of generating regular content for consumer followers. It's not creators in the sense of obviously they're photographers and so they have to create content it's a weird fine line because you know as we've seen on youtube you have these creator personalities who aren't traditionally photographers you know they're insta famous or they're youtube famous and the whole shtick with feeding the algorithm is like you're producing content on a weekly or even more frequent basis and there's always a question of okay what are you real are you a content creator or are you a photographer and not that you have to pick one or the other, but I, you know, I think the, the Gary He example shows the difficulty of being on the grind, you know, 52 weeks out of the year trying to produce content for your followers when that's not really what, what I think a lot of photographers signed up for. Yeah. I mean, feeding the content machine, I mean, even professional journalists and writers, um, you talk on Twitter all the time about, you know, writer's block and, you know, not being able to come up with new pitches and things like this. Totally. And like, and so, you know, that's real for photographers as well. And I, I would guess that for some, it's even more exhausting to write since it, for some, it might not come, might not be nat- as natural. You know, um, when the whole 
behind the scenes phenomenon started on on you know Instagram. I can remember when people just started showing behind the scenes stuff, mm-hmm. and then it became a thing, right, to show BTS content. Uh, I I just feel like people have realized, creatives have realized how difficult it is to to try to focus on working on a long term project, where the last thing you need to do is worry about you know, who's going to be liking the BTS content as you go along. Mm. There, there's a reason why like screenwriters, for example, will work on a script for years and years and years before it's hopefully produced into a movie. It's not like they're, they have a, a newsletter subscription showing you every page of their script to be like, this is what I did this week because it's tiring. <laughs> it's exhausting to have to do that. So, right. I mean, God bless Adam Ferguson because I thought that that Substack interview was fantastic, but oh, yeah. man, I, I have, a lot of concern about the ability to do that in the, in the long term. Makes sense. Facebook apologized this past week because their artificial intelligence labeled videos of black men as primates. According to an article in the New York times, there was a daily mail video of black men in altercations with white people and the police. And after that video finished playing, Facebook prompted Uh, the viewer, in this case, a a former design manager, Darcy Groves, whether she wanted to keep seeing videos about primates. She forwarded the screenshot to a product feedback forum that was, uh, uh, that had members of current and former Facebook employees and a product manager immediately said it was unacceptable. Facebook disabled the entire topic recommendation feature because of this. Mm. This isn't the first time, of course, that big tech has dealt with erroneous AI Uh, According to The Verge, in 2015, Google apologized after its photo app tagged photos of black people as, quote, gorillas. And last year, Facebook said it was studying whether its algorithms trained using AI, including those of Instagram, which Facebook owns, were racially biased. We keep seeing these examples that show the limitations of artificial intelligence and machine learning. And I guess it's really great you know, quote, great when AI works properly. You know, you, you were mentioning to me your, how the IAF, the eye autofocus on your camera, works so fantastically. Mm-hmm. And that's a case where it was trained through AI. So, you know, when the AI works well, we all celebrate. But man, there's enough of these egregious errors that it really makes me wonder how many examples are going sort of unnoticed because they're slightly... They're slightly less egregious. They're more subtle versions of this. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know. It's like a deep, dark hole that we're falling down. Um, I don't know what the solution is other than tech companies really have to pay attention to what their AI is doing. Right. And they need to diversify their employees, right? And yeah. their coders. I mean, Facebook only has a little over 4% of their employees are black. We spoke a couple of weeks ago and actually dedicated a whole show to Apple's new CSAM detection mechanisms. That's the child sexual abuse material. Uh, and it was composed of two things. One was uh, detection of inappropriate images and videos being transmitted through iMessages. And then the other part was CSAM detection for people that were storing images in iCloud. Apple was all gung-ho about rolling this out as a way to combat CSAM. We had a very in-depth discussion about the pros and cons of that. I think we both said, well, somebody's got to do something. Fortunately, Apple sort of listened to a lot of the criticism that 
came from different organizations, nonprofits, uh, child abuse experts. And they have now come out with a statement in the past few days that says, quote, last month we announced plans for features intended to help protect children from predators who use communication tools to recruit and exploit them and limit the spread of child sexual abuse material. Based on feedback from customers, advocacy groups, researchers, and others, we have decided to take additional time over the coming months to collect input and make improvements before releasing these critically important child safety features. And I got to give Apple credit for, for listening to the experts and also for continuing to clarify exactly what their initiative is. Uh, I just found their August 2021 FAQ, so I guess they've been releasing FAQs constantly. Um, to assuage or address some of the criticisms. And I found it to be very straightforward and to the point about like, you know, your kid naked in the bathtub will not be scanned for CSAM because it's not in the CSAM database. Like it was very, very, very cut and dry of like, okay, I get it. I get it. Mm -hmm. I can see the limitations. I'm curious, like, you know, they mentioned feedback from customers, advocacy groups, researchers, and others. I really wonder out of those or who it really was that made them be like, okay, we're going to pause, you know, like, I feel like something big had to have happened for them to be like, okay, never mind. We're, we're pausing this to, to reconfigure, configure it. Yeah. They still seem pretty gung ho about releasing at some point. There was nothing in, in their announcement that made me think that they're not going to move forward. But I do think getting all of this immediate feedback from people who have really studied this problem in the past is probably a good thing. Um, mm. And as we said during the show uh, a couple weeks ago, that's probably the research they should have done before they came out with the announcement in the first place. Yes, true. And we had talked a lot about the uh, experts that have been like, we've been having this conversation <laughs> right. of how to try to protect the children, but Apple has not been a part of it. So if they're now a part of it, then that's that's good. Congrats, Apple. You know, I, I can be a fan of the uh, the Marvel movies. Are you a fan of Marvel at all, I Alan? sure am. Okay, I can get into it. <laughs> well, this past weekend, Marvel's Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings was released, and it stars Simu Liu, who BuzzFeed found that this actor had modeled for stock photography hmm. images before he was famous. <laughs> And this has been discovered via Twitter, of course. And also, he has posted it to his own Insta stories whenever he finds the images being used out in the wild and has revealed that he did this shoot in 2014 for like $100 cash. (laughs) And he says that he sees them everywhere. Yeah. So first of all, let me say that this was a fantastic movie. I saw it yesterday. Oh, uh, in the theaters with my mask on and they checked for uh, vaccination. So all all of that is good. Uh, and nice. I'm not just saying that because I'm Asian. It was it was actually a fantastic movie. Um, <laughs> and so it was so funny to to see you put this on our list of, of things to to watch for. You know, he was only 25 when he did the shoot and he was sort of, a, you know, a starving actor. So I don't blame the guy for saying, oh, you know, he probably found an ad looking for Asian actors. It's part of a a set of images that I'm going to call the diverse office scene. Because there's like... We know it well. Yeah. We know it well. There's like two (laughs) black people. There's one Asian person. There's like four white people. You know, they're in this like white box uh, office setting. And in some of the the, uh, photos, Lou is giving a presentation 
you know, it looks like very, you know, United Nations as kind of uh, light and airy contemporary stock photography. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the photos are taken by Fat Camera, which is a Toronto based production company that creates tons of stock photos and videos uh, of varying quality, I should say, because obviously they're commissioning or contracting with different photographers and some of them are pretty good and some of them are up and coming. Uh, but they're all available on Getty and iStock Photo. I found the set of images on Getty. Uh, We'll link to those on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. There's a set of images that we've referenced that are taken in the office. And there's a second set of images of him in a Zumba class. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I should also point out, if you're intending to use, uh, you know, this stock photo of Lou in your next whatever you're going to use it in, uh, they're cheaper on iStock Photo. Oh, interesting. And I, oh, rather than yeah. rather than fat camera directly? Oh, what, rather than going to Getty Images. So go to oh. iStock. I licensed the image for use on our blog that will accompany this podcast for $33 US. Amazing. Amazing. That's great. <laughs> you know, I'm just sad that Simu doesn't get any royalties from, you know, us then using the images <laughs> no. for the blog. You know what I mean? <laughs> He said in his Instagram stories that he's seen it in dozens of ads, YMCA in Canada, QuickBooks accounting ad in 2015. And ironically, he did work as an accountant for Deloitte back in the day before he was laid off, according to him, because he was a terrible accountant. And he says in his Insta story, quote, moral of the story, think twice before doing a stock photo shoot because they own the photos forever. Now... This is an interesting quote to say as the model of the mm. shoot, because that's totally true, uh, you know, for, for any stock photo shoot as the model, you're, you're only getting, you know, to show up. Um, so that's sort of the, the work for hire arrangement for the model. If you're the photographer and selling it as royalty free stock, then you're only getting paid for that initial license. Right? I can use yeah. now because I licensed it on behalf of Photo Shelter for a ton of different uses for Photo Shelter in perpetuity. <laughs> so now when you blog about Zumba, you can use that photo. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, I mean, the chances of this particular stock model becoming a major Marvel action hero, one in a million. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you have to know that that the potential exists, but you know, he was 25 at the time. I don't blame him. Yeah. He needed the cash. Needed the cash. Anyway, it's a great movie. It's definitely worth seeing. It's, you know, it's, it's part of the whole new set of Marvel movies that are coming out now that the Avengers have ended uh, with the death of Iron Man. I hate to do the spoiler, but that was two years ago. So there's no spoiler <laughs> alert on that. I want to thank everyone for listening to this week's episode. Since you're here, hit that subscribe button smash it leave us a a rating or a review you can always tweet at us at photo shelter thanks for listening we'll talk to you next week bye-bye photo shelter is the online leader for photography websites and workflow tools archive distribute and sell your photos in a mobile friendly responsive website try one free for 14 days at photoshelter.com slash podcast then download one of our free educational guides at photoshelter.com slash resources